Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm Saskia Epstein, Senior VP of Client and Community Relations at PNC Bank in New England, alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, Saskia. It's great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Our guest today is Sandy Edgerly, renowned philanthropist and founder and president of real estate development firm Hexagon Properties, whom the BBJ named as one of its 2021 Power 50 Movement Makers a list comprised of community leaders whose work and actions are helping to shape a more equitable Boston. Sandy, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Saskia. It's great to be here with you today. We're excited and look forward to a great conversation. So Sandy, let's start off by introducing you a little bit to our listeners. I wonder if you might uh, be so kind as to tell us about you, your work at Hexagon, and then following that, we'll get a little bit more, a lot more into your community work more in depth and a few other things. Sure. I didn't grow up in Boston, but I feel like Boston has been my adopted home. I grew up in New Jersey. I came to go to college. I went to Harvard undergrad, and then I got my first job out of college at Bain and Company in Boston, met my husband, Paul, there, and we never left. I feel like I've lived my whole life within sort of this 10-mile radius and really just love it. My husband and I have four kids. They're all in their 20s now. They've all spent, you know, I think most of them will probably settle in Boston. And so for our whole family, it's been a really important part of our lives. I'd say career-wise, I've had really three major chapters I started in consulting at Bain & Company. That was an amazing place to learn about business, to get started, really think about strategic issues and work with clients. I then had a chapter where I was really focused on nonprofit work. I did a lot of volunteer work and board work and working with organizations, mostly focused in Boston, including chairing the board of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. I served on numerous boards and then um, also chaired the board of the Boston Foundation. And then probably about 10 years ago, I was ready for another sort of work chapter and started real estate development firm Hexagon Properties, which has really been focused on reimagining mostly historic spaces for the new millennium. Mostly I started in residential and then kind of morphed from there into also into hospitality. And uh, so in each chapter, it's been, I've learned so much. It's been a lot of fun and really have felt like I've kind of blossomed along the way. The thing about the way you describe that, Sandy, is as chapters, usually you end one chapter before you start a new one. And I know some of that work hasn't ended. You've had such an impressive and successful career in the luxury residential space and do extensive work in the education, social service, and nonprofit arena where I got to know you. Your most recent venture, the Quinn House, melds a bit of the two. Can you share the story behind that? Yes. And I think you're absolutely right, Saskia. None of the chapters really ever ended. They've taken up probably different proportions of my day, but in the end, I've kind of added along the way, I guess, in each different phase. And you're right, the Quinn House, in a way, is the perfect culmination of those different chapters. 
I think the Quinn, if I said it was a purposeful journey at the start, I would be lying. If you'd asked me probably six years ago or seven years ago, if Paul and I would start a private social club, I would say, what? <laughs> what, are, what are you talking about? No, of course not. I wouldn't have really necessarily even known what that was. And so um, it was kind of by happy accident that I even learned about the idea of a new kind of social club for the new millennium and really felt like it would be something that'd be great for Boston. And then ultimately something that I would really be excited to do again, along with my husband and along with a whole lot of amazing people along the way who we kind of worked together to bring it to fruition. But essentially, I was doing real estate development and it was mostly focused on residential. There was a building in Boston that, as it turns out, could have become something else. It, it was licensed to be in the hospitality space. And as I was doing some strategy work to understand what it could possibly be, a number of friends and people in other cities did say, oh my gosh, you should make it a private club. You know, look at other cities, look at London, look at San Francisco, maybe New York. Other cities are developing these sort of new private clubs for the new for the new generation. And it might be something that would be something that Boston would benefit from. And so I started to investigate this concept and came to learn about it and think, gee, something like that in Boston would be incredible. I hope somebody does that. But it wasn't right for me at that particular location or, or point in time, but I had it in the back of my mind. And then over the years following, I had an opportunity. There was a building that we had purchased that I thought would become residential, but could have, from a zoning perspective, become a private club. And that got my mind going, thinking, oh my gosh, maybe this is my chance to do this kind of crazy idea that we'd had early on, and started to develop the concept. And then while it didn't work in that particular location for a number of reasons, in the end, the opportunity to purchase the Algonquin Club and execute our vision for this new version of the social club there really came together. And it came together kind of quickly in the end. It was an amazing opportunity. And I feel like there were moments along the way when it really was truly like the idea on the back of a napkin <laughs> with thoughts about what would benefit Boston. I think having been here for such a long period of time, and having met so many amazing people, the main idea behind it for me was we as a city and a community, I'd say we sort of punch above our weight. We're not a huge city, but we are absolutely world-class on so many dimensions. I think if you think about our hospitals, our educational institutions, our arts institutions, our nonprofit organizations, financial institutions, the entrepreneurial spirit that's here, just in so many different dimensions, our sports teams, you know, on lots and lots of dimensions, I'd say we're really a world-class city and the people who are part of these different industries and, and activities are absolutely amazing people. You know, I feel like I've been so lucky to be part of this community and have just um, met so many incredible people. And yet there wasn't necessarily a place where you would run into each other, meet new people, gather. And that was really just the thinking behind this idea that ultimately became the Quinn House, which is where's the place that all these amazing people who are all doing really cool things can kind of come together and meet each other. 
you never imagined founding a social club. I never imagined joining one. So <laughs> beware of the unexpected. And famous last words of entrepreneurs is, I hope someone does this, right? Um, so clearly that, that led you to uh, this beautiful creation, the Quinn. Your comparison to sort of the nonprofit landscape, whether that's on boards or events, is very familiar to me. It's been my experience at the Quinn and especially in the last few years during COVID when we've all been on a bit of an event hiatus. It's been a really meaningful experience to forge those kinds of connections. I've joked with some of my nonprofit friends, it's like a nonprofit gala, but without a long program and an auction, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is the best kind of compliment <laughs> from an event planner perspective. That's um, great. Yeah, in addition to you know creating spaces and unique places, you mentioned the social impact focus of being important for the cultural landscape of Boston. Tell us a little bit about the social impact mission of the Quinn's Social Impact Fund? Impact was always going to be at the core in terms of who would want to be a member and the values that we had, the ethos, um, and also how we're going to give back. I always think about it as we have amazing people who are all making a difference in various ways. A lot of people work in the space. A lot of people are involved as volunteers or as board members. Uh, people give philanthropically. You know, there's probably not a single person who doesn't really make a difference individually. But then this idea of how do you come together as a community to really make a difference collectively? And that's part of what we're, what we're working on. Uh, we formed the Quinn Impact Fund. We started with it actually during COVID before we were even open. And we launched with some initial funding and started to think about what were our impact areas and way we would like to give. And I think of it as, you know, we're coming together as a community and we're making a difference in a few ways. One is financially, philanthropically, we're contributing to organizations that are making a difference, some of which are known and established, some of which are newer and more entrepreneurial, but that are really striving to make a difference in in the impact areas that we've picked, at least initially for our areas of impact. We're also doing what we can to, I'm going to call it programming, to how do we inform, inspire, enlighten our members as to what is even happening in the community. All these great nonprofits, and I know you've been so involved, Saskia, in starting, you know, launching on the innovation side of things and on the leadership side, but I've always been so blown away by the power of just the great ideas in Boston and in the greater Boston and, and sort of Massachusetts community. And all these people have great ideas and solutions. And then they actually, as you, you know, they go do it. <laughs> you know, they don't rest on their laurels and think, you know, someone else should do it. You know, there's the innovation that exists in the nonprofit space here is so impressive. So they may hope somebody else gets <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. It's Boston is a hotbed for social innovation, and yeah. it's it's really such an amazing aspect of our community. Yeah, it is. And so for us, I think part of it is you know bringing to light what is happening, what's innovative. You know, what are some of the tough issues, and then what are some of the potential solutions, and um, sort of inspiring and informing um, the community about what's happening. And I think the third thing is really engagement, getting involved, really. In, in many different ways, whether it's hands-on volunteering or getting involved by uh, picking something to kind of dig deeper into. But we want to also forge those opportunities for our, our member community. A lot of our members are younger. You know, I talked a little bit about being cross-generational, but, you know, we have 
from 21, you know, as the youngest, um, up to people who are really established, you know, leaders in various fields and so forth. But, you know, if you're just starting out and you're in your early 20s and maybe you just graduated from college or grad school and you've just moved to Boston and, you know, you might be looking for where to get involved. Those of us that are have been here for a while have maybe picked the things that we're already deeply involved in and we've tried things and you're kind of settled into maybe the things you want to commit to. But the younger generation is seeking it and I think so hungry for it. And it's been a lot of fun to help to be part, you know, part of the opportunity to say, hey, here's some things, you know, see what what kind of excites you and where you might decide to dig into. So that's that's part of what we're doing. So it's just the beginning for us, honestly, very early days, but it's pretty exciting. Well, you've done so much already, and the place is just spectacular beyond uh, imagination, what you've done there and just the atmosphere you've created and the fact that you are engaging the younger audience, especially the fact that, you know, when many people have been working remote more than ever, they need a place to gather, you know, and connect. And it's just a wonderful way to, to do that. So kudos to you. You've talked a little bit already just about the, the philanthropic work you've done, which has such an impact both in helping people. It has an impact economically on our region. You've been the chair of the board of the Boston Foundation. You worked in the arts and really had a lot of focus on DEI. Um, you know, and in, in the past two years, it's been like anything we've ever seen. You know, we all don't even know which end is up right now. So when you think about the important work at the Boston Foundation, and then some of the other board work you've done, like City Year, the Mass General Presidents Council, you know, Horizons for Homeless Children. How has the events of the past two years kind of informed or impacted some of the work that you've done on boards and perhaps even harking a little bit back to the earlier board work that you've done? You know, how does that inform how you look at it now? I think during the pandemic, it was sort of interesting. It was also just an incredible challenge for any nonprofit that operated in person. So, you know, all these like youth serving organizations where kids would go after school that are so critical and then not to be able to necessarily even be together. What a challenge. And I'd say in a way it forced innovation. It forced, you know, thinking about how do we still do the things that matter and make those connections. And then in the end, as soon as we can come back together, like what are we going to do to really help? And so I found that the, the organizations that I've been a part of have been really, really creative and persistent. And again, still, even though the challenges in some cases are even greater because the needs became so much greater during the pandemic and they've really excelled, I'd say, and really had an impact. And then also I think I've always been just in complete and total admiration for the donor community here in greater Boston, Massachusetts and, and so forth, because whether it's the you know individuals, foundations, corporations, big and small, people are so generous. They really, really care. And at times of crisis, which is also a time when probably everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, like, what do I do myself? You know, everybody is thinking of others. And I have found that in terms of the nonprofit community have been so um, really just grateful, I guess, for the generosity of so many people who who gave more, you know, at a time when when they could have, you know, maybe pulled back to really help. So I think that is part of what makes Boston such a great place. Yeah, definitely. The way the community and business came together and continues to do so was really extraordinary. It was a definitely a watershed moment for sure. What would you foreshadow to be some of the longer term 
influences of the last couple of years and the pandemic in particular on the nonprofit landscape and in the business community? Well, you know, I think in some ways, maybe it's an opportunity. I think probably a week before the pandemic, if you had asked anybody, what are the odds that we can all work remotely? You know, everyone would have said, no, it's impossible. We can't do it. And then, of course, out of necessity, we all did. And within weeks, we were all functioning, working from home and on Zoom. You know, it's quite amazing what we were able to accomplish. I personally really love being together. But I think having the ability to work remotely, and again, depends on the jobs and depends on on the position. But I think it added so much flexibility to people's schedules in terms of people who have families, people who are having long commutes, people, you know, I've heard from friends who had long commutes and young children and then found like, oh my gosh, like if I can work from home two days a week, that's four hours of my week that I can do some, you know, something else with, you know, some of it goes to work, but some of it goes to maybe, you know, coaching my kid's soccer team or, or doing something else that I probably couldn't do otherwise. So I think probably in some ways that flexibility allows for more creative thinking about our workforce and so forth. I've even thought about in Massachusetts, you know, where do people live and and where do they work and what does it mean for a city? You know, it used to be that people would come into the city and you'd work in the city. And then, of course, so many other businesses depend on that. Well, what happens if not everyone is coming all the time for work? What if you're coming two or three days a week and not five days a week? And then what about all the other businesses around there? And then what do we have to do as a city to be attractive to people, to be a place that you come, not just because you have to go to the office, but what are we going to be so that people want to live here, they want to come here. And so I think I've always been an admirer of the leadership of being creative, saying, okay, like the role of a city, like we have to adapt. I don't know what the answer is, but we have to experiment with some things and, and find ways because it's going to be really important. It's not going to be the same as it always was. Sandy, you've had such an incredible career in, as you mentioned, sort of the three different areas and worked with so many amazing people along the way. So when you think about it, what is some of the best advice that you've been given from some of the leaders you've worked with? Yeah, I'd say my parents inspired me from a really early age. My mom was an artist when until I was eight and then became a professor at Rutgers University for 30 years and then came back to becoming an artist. And my dad, who was an engineer, always taught me, think big, you know, it, that he always like think big dreams. Uh, both my parents came from Europe and emigrated to the U.S. right before I was born. And so they wanted their child to, ha- you know, be part of a free country and really pursued the American dream. So I'd say both of them really inspired me to just, you know, think that the sky's the limit in terms of what I could do. And that was always, I think, um, that sort of limitless feeling like I really can, you know, do and try anything is great. My husband, Paul, you know, I met him, or I was young. I was 22 when we met and we were about to, on Saturday, actually, we're celebrating our 33rd wedding anniversary. So oh, congratulations. <laughs> and I'd say awesome. for Paul, um, I've really learned a lot about um, this idea of like really figuring out what's important and focusing on that. You know, but there's so many things that can distract you. And especially if you're in, in the business world, you know, a thousand things come at you. They're crises, big and small. And decisions that have to happen. And and there are also a lot of things that are kind of fun to do in the mix. And so it's easy to lose focus. But I think this idea of figuring out what really, really matters and making sure you over-invest in that, double down on that, that was, that's been something I've really taken to heart. 
Myra Kraft uh, was a real mentor to me as I was really starting to get involved in the nonprofit community and then and, um, and in the leadership of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. And I think what I really learned from Myra is just not to be afraid to have high expectations of yourself, of course, but also of others, you know, that, and especially in the nonprofit world, you know, we have to expect a lot of the people who can make a real difference in whatever way that is, whether it's financial or time or talent or lending their expertise. And so uh, Myra, I just always admired because she would ask for what was required. And it wasn't for her. It was for a really worthy cause or organization and for kids who, you know, and she wasn't afraid to ask. And by God, she, you know, she accomplished so much more than really anybody else I could think of. And so that really always inspired me as well. I love that. I didn't know Myra myself, but I hear so many amazing things about her. And that's uh, that's really cool advice. I love it. So if I just took it quickly on the other side, those are all really important lessons and advice that have guided you. But what advice, what's your best advice that you might give to business leaders, like for maybe this current C-suite or that next generation of executive? What would you tell them? I would say, and I think I learned a lot in developing Quinn because it there were lots of challenges along the way and especially during the pandemic. So I think the thing that I really took away is this idea of if there's something you really want to accomplish, just don't let anything deter you because sometimes obstacles will roll themselves in front of you. And, <laughs> and there are probably a lot of moments where you could say, oh, you know, is it worth it? No. But I think if there's something you really, really want to accomplish, just keep on that path and find a way to work around it. Um, now, there are times that you probably have to like maybe pivot, you know what I mean? I'm not saying to be bullheaded and at all costs not to change. You know, sometimes you have to, well, you might go this way instead of that way or might figure out a workaround. To, but in the end, I think having that clarity of the goal and the dream. And again, for me, I think, you know, and maybe it's this entrepreneurial thing when you have this vision of what you're trying to do. It's a dream. You want to see it come to life. And so like not being afraid to just like keep on, even though there are a lot of reasons, a lot of very intellectual reasons that might say it won't necessarily work. But if you believe in it, you can make it happen. The other piece of advice, this was sort of interesting. It came to me and I found it very helpful. Right before the pandemic, Mass Challenge had their large event at the uh, Boston Convention Center. There were probably, I don't know, 1,500 people in the room. And one of the founders, I believe it was Airbnb, was the featured speaker. And what he was telling the story of his founding of his company, and he said a piece of advice that he got early on as they were founding Airbnb was, you're better off having a few people who really, really love you than a whole lot of people who kind of like you. And I thought that was interesting and that really stuck with me. And then for us, as we were starting the Quinn, we kind of, I took that to heart. I thought, you know, having that core group of people, because you can't do something like this alone. You know, you have the idea, but you need a lot of people to come along with you and, and you know, to help and be part of it. And, and, then, and that's really part of the joy of it too. But this idea of like, well, we had people who were like, they were all in, they were so pumped to do it. They wanted it too. And, and those are the people that we kind of like really pulled together. And I thought that was super helpful advice. He didn't know I was one of 1500 people in the audience. <laughs> You know, he didn't know who I was, but I thought that was, that really helped me in a moment. So maybe that'll help somebody else too. That advice is terrific and it's universal. I'm so curious about where does that passion come from for you personally? And, 
what would be your advice to others about how to uh, tap into it or unleash it for them? I mean, I think at the core, your personal values, you know, for me, family I grew up in and our, our values as a family and Paul and I together, our values, I think part of it is just like, it's kind of in you. I was a candy striper when I was in middle school. And I, when I was first um, at Bain and Company um, with a good friend in Boston, Audrey Rennie, and a few others, we came together, we formed a nonprofit because we wanted to, you know, we were all young professionals, but we wanted to make a difference. So uh, finding little ways to give back has always been just, I don't know where it came from, but I think it was just always there for me. Marion Hurd, who I was on the board of the United Way for a number of years when she was the CEO of the United Way of Mass Bay and Mary Mac Valley. She was a powerhouse of a leader and still is. Uh, but I remember Marion saying one time, people always say, give till it hurts. But she said, that's wrong. Give till it feels good. And I think with all of this, whether it's giving of time or money or, or involvement, there is something about the personal benefit you get from going all in on something and really giving and stretching and doing more than just the perfunctory thing, but going all in on it. Because when you do, it's great. It feels fantastic. You just feel like you've been a part of something. And I have to say, I've really felt like we have just this amazing community of people, you know, that we're all a part of. People are involved. People do give. And that's it's a pretty cool thing to see. And someone's cause might be different than mine, you know, and some are national or international and some are local and some are in the arts and some are in climate change and some are in education. You know, there are all kinds of ways and, and places that people can find their passion. But when you do, it's a pretty positive cycle, I think, um, between what you're giving and, and then, you know, like what you're getting back from it as well. So Sandy, as you know, the BBJ had named you in 2021, one of our Power 50 movement makers. And that list, as you uh, probably remember, was comprised of community leaders, business leaders whose work and their actions are helping to shape a more equitable Boston. And I wonder if you can share from your point of view, based on that and thinking of some of the folks on that list, and just in general, share with us a little bit about your perspective. What does the business community need to be doing and keep on doing to continue to strive towards making Boston that more equitable and accessible community for all of us. First, I just want to say what an incredible honor it was to be included on that list. I mean, truly, it's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's well just deserved. a wow. <laughs> and um, just an amazing group of people who who are making a difference in so many ways. And so to even be considered in the same arena with them was pretty special. So thank you. I think you're really onto something about the business community because I think that I've done a lot in the nonprofit space and now also on the business side of things. And I think there is so much overlap between the goals, the goals of the business community to really make sure that we're a place that's fantastic for all business stakeholders. So that's, you know, our employees, our customers, our shareholders, you know, all the different constituents to have the city, let's say if you're an employer in the city, be the best place to operate a business as a goal. And that overlaps almost entirely with what I think the nonprofit community and the philanthropic communities also want, which is how do we make our community the best place so that you want to raise your family here, your kids have a great education here, 
you have a beautiful home here. You have a great life here. It's a city with art and culture and beautiful green spaces. It's a place of innovation and creativity. You know, all those things that I think make a city and a community great are also, you know, I think we all we all want those things. And so I think coming together and finding the places of overlap is really a really big opportunity. Sandy, we know you must require some respite on occasion, right? <laughs> I'm sure you take a break and not just to coach soccer. Let's close out with some rapid fire questions, starting with this one. What are you currently reading, watching, or listening to? Well, Watching, I can't wait for the next season of Ted Lasso, personally. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, we took a family vacation this summer with um, our four kids, and we watched two fantastic sports movies that I really enjoyed. One was called um, American Underdog. It was the Kurt Warner story. And the other was Hustle with um, Adam Sandler. Both I recommend. They were really fun. And then, of course, Top Gun. Went to the movies in a real movie theater with popcorn and everything and saw Top Gun Maverick and thought that was fantastic. So That was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I'm so, so glad you're making time for, for, for that. <laughs> We've heard a lot about the causes that you have been involved with throughout your career and in a variety of leadership capacities. What is a cause that you're passionate about? And I'll add a caveat here that our listeners might not already know about. Oh, well, um, right now I'm passionate about the Quinn Impact Fund because I'm trying to really work with our team. We're launching it, we're creating it, and I think it has so much potential. So we're just in this kind of early stages. So that's very exciting. I've always been passionate about youth-oriented causes because I feel like the best investment we can make is in our young people. So Horizons for Homeless Children, which makes such a huge difference in kids who are um, facing homelessness and helping their parents and really, really transforms lives, I think is one. I think the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston make such a big difference. Um, I know every year the Boys and Girls Clubs of America pulls their alumni. And I think it was something like 55% of club alumni said that the Boys and Girls Club saved their life. And that feeling of it makes a difference. Um, you know, it takes oh. a a lot of years to raise a great kid. And, and I think when you when a kid goes to the club, they have they always know they have someone who believes in them and that's so important. So that's another one. I think big brother, big sister is another one where just the power of mentorship, you know, having one person who is there to listen, help, offer advice, just be a sounding board uh, over a long period of time um, can make a really, really big difference in a young person's life. So those are a few that are on my hot list. That's great. And um, a lot of our guests are shy about this next question, but I have a feeling we can trust you. Who is a leader in either the business or the nonprofit community, a leader to watch? Mm. And especially given the sort of entrepreneurial nature of our community, perhaps an organization or a leader who is uh, new to the landscape. Mm. You know, one person I've admired well, a couple come to mind, but one person is Kate Broomy, who's the new CEO of Mass Challenge. Mass Challenge to me is fascinating because it's really focused on fostering this entrepreneurial support system and ecosystem that I think probably didn't exist. John Harthorn was the founder, did an amazing job. I think maybe about 12 years ago, he was trying to start a business and realized it was almost impossible to do it in Boston. There was not the ecosystem to do it. People went to 
to San Francisco, you know, to Palo Alto. And so he really started it, I think, with that mindset of how do you make it, you know, how do you make Boston this ecosystem supporting nonprofits? And so I think what has happened over the last, you know, maybe 12-ish years and now Kate taking it to the next level is really, really exciting. I think it's, uh, and again, it's this intersection of innovation, solutions for all kinds of problems, you know, that can be improved through innovation. And um, it's this intersection of like nonprofit and for-profit that's really fascinating. Um, I think Shagun Adewu is someone also I really admire. I really admired his leadership of uh, the of BECMA, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, when he was there. And now in his position, uh, working as a cabinet member with Mayor Wu and his real focus on, I think he's really, along with the leadership of the city, thinking about how do we make Boston a better place for people, what's going to draw them, what's going to keep them here in this changing landscape. So I really admire the creativity there and excited to see where that goes. So I've seen him at the Quinn a couple of times, Sandy, actually. Oh, yeah. I think he's been there. Yes, um, these are great, these are great recommendations. And Carolyn doesn't yeah. know I'm going to ask this, but the the Movement Makers Power 50 list is coming out soon. Who is somebody, if you haven't already mentioned them, who is somebody you'd like to see on that list? Well, let's see. You know, I think Mo Cowan, Mo has been, I think, on your list in the past and has done so much in so many different ways. Now he is chairing the board of Mass Challenge and just he, he's someone who's always impressed me. I think Lee Pelton is a hero. You know, I think of, as my term was ending, Boston Foundation and Paul, the legendary Paul Grogan, who was just an amazing leader for so many years, really transformed the Boston Foundation, I think Boston and community foundations across the country. And so always it's hard to think who will be the leader who could take over after such a, a strong, legendary leader. And I think Lee has stepped up so beautifully and is really leading the Boston Foundation, which is such an incredibly important institution so effectively. So he's he's maybe top of and my And now life. we've come full circle. Lee Pelton was our very first guest. Yeah. On oh. <laughs> And and I, you know, it reminds me actually some of what we talked about with him was the vision and wish for Boston. What is your wish for Boston? My wish for Boston is that we live up to our full potential. I'm just in awe of all the different parts of Boston that are here, the talent, the institutions, the business community, the nonprofit community, the, the physical beauty and the history and it has so much potential, the innovation. And I guess my hope is that we really do capitalize on all of that and come together and make sure that we remain, you know, a community of incredible opportunity, really for, for everybody, for all of our citizens and for our children, you know, you know, the leaders of tomorrow. I think we'll get there. I'm an optimist. I agree. <laughs> totally. Well, thank you so much. This has yeah. been a really wonderful conversation. We really appreciate you joining yeah, us. Thank you so much. It's been terrific. Oh, thank you both so much. It's been so much fun. And kudos to you on the series and everything you're doing, both of you, to make Boston a better place. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Sandy, and for sharing your insight. I'm Saskia Epstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones, and this is PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Sandy Edgerly, founder and president of Hexagon Properties. You can find C-Speak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time.
You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speak.